going through. So that was exceedingly relatable at that time. And ER was also super popular. And uh, my life and my friends way more closely paralleled Scrubs than it did ER. Just it, that looked a whole lot more like real life. <laughs> what were some of the most realistic things about Scrubs then and that like still translate to now? If I still watch, you get the, uh, let's see, you get the pompous um, older guy who knows everything and is just, uh, and I'm talking about not Dr. Cox. There was the administrator. I can't remember his, that character's name. But just uh, there, there's plenty of crusty 60 or 70-something white dudes wandering around a hospital who think they know everything and really don't care what you think of them, but still do a good job of administrating and running. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact that the uh, doctors aren't all serious all the time, even though they're dealing with, dealing with serious issues pretty regularly. Very true. What? Uh, yeah. So that that's like your the, the thing that really drew me into this conversation. I don't even know. Do you even you don't actually live in Carbondale, right? No, I live in Murfreesboro. OK, cool. Well, we'll accept you anyway. Like, <laughs> thanks for your thanks for your commitment and service. Um, <laughs> um, so the whole the whole thing was like the the frankness that just kind of shines through in what you say and how you say it. Like, is it I mean. Do you think you are uncommon in the medical field in the way that you approach things? Or do you think that like there is a good broad set of level-headed folks who are just like, we got to take everything with a grain of salt? Um, no, there's definitely some of both. I mean, like I think probably like any field, there's just quite the cast of characters um, wandering around. Some who are more self-assured than others and some deservedly more self-assured than others. <laughs> um, so some who probably shouldn't be quite as sure as they are. Uh, Sure as they are. Um, I don't know, man. I, I love numbers. I, I think if you really understand statistics, especially when a study in medicine, you could be a lot more sure of certain things and a lot less sure of others because um, there's research out there to tell you those things. And people who don't read research, don't read medical journals will sometimes try to pose like they really know what they're talking about. But <laughs> man, it'll fall apart if you really start to pick up the details for them. Um, do you want to do this as a masked podcast or oh, I can unmasked pull it off. podcast? Yeah. I wear it so much I kind of forget that. Yeah, it's no, I mean, which is a good thing. Um, I'll tell you at the, so I was unemployed at the start of the pandemic and I got a job like two months into the pandemic in a place where nobody respected more masks outside of literally myself. Like in in the immediate office area where I would work and with the executives that I would work with and around. So like being around people where it's just a natural habit, it's a kind of nice change of pace. It's what I like about my current workplace, what I like about engaging with folks like yourself. Like, <laughs> You know, wandering around, I mean, having worked in a hospital for 20 years, though, I mean, that's just a common everyday part of life in certain parts of the hospital. You wear the, uh, you wear the mask. Don't get me wrong, when uh, there's that famous moment that happens in all medical shows, something goes wrong, and you get the nurse or the doctor ripping the mask off in disgust. <laughs> um, it, it's almost never like that. It's more the shoe covers, because those things are slick. If, if there's one piece of protective garb we're in a hurry to get off, it's usually those, more so than the mask. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> the shoe covers. It's the shoe covers. Oh, man. This is what this really is, is a WTF Carbondale, like, behind the scenes look at the life of medical professionals <laughs> or at least one really like honorary medical professional, <laughs> at least um, yeah. WTF Carbondale podcast episode 29. We're talking to Jeff. Say the last name again. I'm so sorry. Ripper da Ripper da. Uh, we think it's Dutch. It's Dutch. <laughs> it's definitely um, MD uh, MD uh, because he is a doctor. So listen to what he has to say. Uh, maybe there will be some gems that you should take with you and apply to your everyday life in the middle of a pandemic. So, um, you know, that's part of why we're talking to him. Part of why we're talking to him because he's an interesting person living an interesting life here in this little old place we call home Carbondale, Illinois, even if he's, you know, technically lives in Murfreesboro, his impact and his presence is felt throughout. Um, thanks Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Thank and that's you. how the intros go. Wow, I don't know if I can live up to that. Okay. <laughs> Man, you've already lived up to it. You opened up the show on Scrubs was literally my, <laughs> my residency life. Like, that's a pretty solid anchor to the show. <laughs> good, 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 good. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been here, You before the show we were, we were talking, you said you, you've been here for about 13 years. I mean, what brought you here initially? So I grew up in uh, Albers, which is a the, the sign driving into town said 650 
when I moved out, it has since experienced a boom in the form of two to three new subdivisions. So it's now up to like a thousand <laughs> people. Uh, Albers is 30 miles outside of St. Louis, right on Interstate 64. So small town, but only a half an hour to a, to a big city. Mm-hmm. I told anybody who would listen when I was 18 years old that I was getting the heck out of Southern Illinois and never coming back in my life, man. <laughs> uh, went to college in Northern Illinois, did the classic third year, go study abroad for a year thing. Um, so lived in Spain, came back, medical school in Champaign-Urbana and Rockford. I moved to Mexico for a little while in there and had to bop around a few other places and uh, say, you know, it's really not so bad there after experiencing some other things and I had kids and uh my parents my wife's parents still live in Clinton County um you know roughly half an hour outside of St. Louis and wanting them to get to know their grandkids was important but I didn't want to live down the street so that's it when I was uh and coming out of medical school I had a couple of particular interests um I do family practice which means I do a little bit of everything but I wanted to do obstetrics um deliver babies and I found out when I was talking around to hospitals, they would either say, nope, your family practice, you can't deliver babies, or yes, we're desperate for obstetricians, can you be on call every other night? And I didn't really want to do that. So job opportunity in Murfreesboro at Shawnee Healthcare, they said, yeah, you can do low risk obstetrics, you don't have to be on call that often. And I also did that third year abroad in Spain. So learned to speak Spanish and was looking for a place where I could get to use that. And the clinic where I work runs a program for migrant workers. So what what do people miss in like the their their limited understandings of how we are able to administer uh, healthcare to immigrant populations in uh, America? Like right. So it, uh, I'll preface that with a Jim Jeffries story that he tells okay. <laughs> I'm so sorry to wreck your podcast like that. <laughs> where where he talks about the difference between going to an American hospital and like treats the interaction like it's an Australian hospital and where they're asking him does does the person he's with have insurance because they're the person that needs the administration he's just bringing them there and like all, all these questions and he's like oh just put it on my insurance like that's a thing that you can just do in Australia <laughs> everybody just has insurance thanks to the government so they're just like no nah, just put that $15 on my tab for our <laughs> visit here and they're like no mm-hmm. she has to have insurance and you can't just put her on your insurance that's not how it works so so locally, anyway, I mean, migrant workers are exceedingly important to the to the agricultural industry, especially to fruit mm-hmm. um, and seasonal labor in particular. So the local farmers definitely have some interest in keeping laborers healthy, mm-hmm. except what would happen for a long time was that migrants would come to the United States for a certain time, um, not really have a chance to get health care, so they wouldn't seek anything until they were so sick that they had to be put in the hospital. Mm-hmm. The hospital has no hope of recouping the bill yeah. um, that that they're owed when the when the migrant worker is sick enough to be in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, so the hospital winds up taking a loss, mm-hmm. right? So the the cost there. So and also the the um, we're gonna say the agricultural system can't afford to lose its workers necessarily. Yeah. So it really came down to some government programs that came about in kind of the 1970s and 80s that said we'll give some grants for people to provide um, health care to people who are here working on uh, visas in mm-hmm. the agricultural field, and that's it. Uh, Shawnee Healthcare has gets a grant for that. So yeah, we care for people who are here in the country temporarily picking fruit. That's phenomenal. Yeah, and it's really like just that simple. Like there's just we recognize the need to take care of the people that are here, you know, providing this crucial labor function. And yeah, it, it really is. And I mean, just, you know, most people who are super sick aren't going to come to the U.S. and do that kind of work because they're too sick to leave their family. And I say Mexico because primarily from Mexico, mm-hmm. some from Guatemala, but those are the two two big places that mm-hmm. I see in particular. So uh yeah, and saying, hey, if you're here temporarily and you get sick and word kind of gets around, here's a couple of places that you can go where there's um, staff that speak Spanish, doctors that speak Spanish, and can actually take care of you so you don't get so sick that you miss a ton of days of work and have to go to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's phenomenal. They- every, every so often, the government will do something that kind of makes sense. <laughs> this is, the, Not a lot. Just yeah, like- the, this, is, uh, the, this is one of those cases, actually. <laughs> do you... Do you run into a lot of that just in work in the healthcare field of like, 
it seems like the things that should make sense from a policy perspective aren't done in healthcare and the things that don't make sense are the things that you're flooded with. Is that what it feels oh like? God. Or is that I, just like a mythology? No, thing? that's absolutely true. Okay. I mean, one of the reasons healthcare is so expensive in America is because it costs hospitals and healthcare systems a ton of money to comply with government regulations. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the government puts regulations on any industry for a reason. It's because nobody was stepping up and volunteering to make the places safer and cleaner <laughs> yeah. and do a better job and making sure everybody's board certified and that kind of stuff. But I mean, there's an intense, I mean, a large amount of money that goes into that kind of thing locally and, and elsewhere. The problem is the regulations and the guidelines don't always match up with what good practice is. I'll give you an example, right? So uh -huh. well, one example, diabetes, let's say. So Medicare will publish some guidelines and they say, hey, we will pay you doctors if you take better care of people with diabetes. That means getting this one lab called an A1C below a certain level. Mm -hmm. Except new research came out saying, oh, that's not true anymore. You should actually, if this was the level, actually you should have their numbers between here now. Mm -hmm. And there was about a five-year lag before Medicare came out and said, okay, we change our mind. We'll move that, we'll move that number a little uh -huh, bit. Uh -huh. So the science says one thing, the regulations say another thing. You can make more money by, by not following good science, but following the regulations. Mm -hmm. And that's a fairly nitpicky little thing, but there's 10,000 little nitpicky things like that, man. No. And they just add up. And add oh up my and God. Up. And it's frustrating. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, and it's, it, it's, we've gotten to a point in I mean, globally, right? It's, it's not just an American thing, but it's like the world now moves because information moves so fast that there's no way that policy is is keeping pace because we've not put people in place that move at the pace of the earth now. <laughs> Correct. Uh, I think our, our government and our regulatory bodies, for better or worse, are, are designed to move slowly and cautiously mm -hmm. to make sure that there's fairly wide consensus on the changes that are made. The problem is sometimes when change needs to happen quickly, COVID, right? Yeah. The system is just not designed to do that necessarily. So what, what have you, I mean... What, and and I, I won't say, like, what have you specifically yourself had to do, and you, you can use the, the personal connection there, but, like, what have you seen or what are you aware of in the healthcare field where people have had to just, like, break things to move it forward and, like, just deal with it and start treating it like it's a Silicon Valley startup of, like, just move fast and like get through stuff and just do it and just say, we're not going to, we're not going to follow the government regulations. We're just going to go. Yeah. Whew, that doesn't happen very much because okay. the, the, yeah, the penalties are just too, too much. Um, so yeah, it's not, I, I would love to tell you that that happens all the time, this sort of rebellious spirit. <laughs> um, there have been a couple of cases in my career where I've refused to do certain paperwork because I found it to be a waste of time. Uh -huh. Like the clinic can make a tiny little bit more money if I fill out this one certain piece of paperwork on people verifying that I took good care of a patient. Mm -hmm. And it, just, it makes me unhappy. <laughs> no, no, that's, 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 yeah. that's, so I say yeah. if, I, if I'm going to make, you know, a tiny bit less money every year to uh, not be frustrated all the time, I think that's okay. <laughs> yeah. well, that, that's good. well uh, so I, I guess more so than uh, from, from a policy perspective, as things have had to move faster from a policy position guiding you guys, what, I mean, do you see stuff where kind of the, the policy directives have moved fast and broken things or not been where they needed to be and, and have changed a different direction quickly? Oh God, is it COVID, right? It's kind yeah. of the perfect example yeah. of that, right? Cause when the, when, I mean, it's been probably a little over a year since the disease first popped up in medical journals. Mm -hmm. And then in the US, when we all kind of basically ignored it until March, April, you know, when <laughs> things started happening and guidelines were changing quickly and the science was kind of lagging. So a lot of the guidelines were based on best guesses instead of science. And then science kind of catches up, you know, say masks don't work. Oops, we're wrong about that. Masks work and not only do they work, they work really well. Yeah. But then people say, well, a month ago you said this. Yeah, we didn't know. <laughs> Welcome to science. Yeah, at the, at the time. This is, uh, this is how that works. Or how long to quarantine when you have COVID? Or how mm -hmm. close of contact do you have to have to, to quarantine? So those are places where guidelines, recommendations, they've, just, they've changed quickly because we're learning a lot. Yeah, well, yeah. and at least we're learning. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes. Right? It could be. It could be. Where This is probably the public's first view at how kind of medical practice morphs. Mm -hmm. And this happens a lot in the management of a lot of diseases and little conditions. It just changes um, much more slowly because research is generally not done so quickly. But this happens a ton. Or somebody will say, you know, my doctor 20 years ago told me to do this. I'm like, well, that was 20 years ago. A doctor 
a doctor 150 years ago would have told you to suck on a lime and put a leech on your finger. If that's how you want to treat this, we can do that that way. But things advance, you know. Yeah. <laughs> that's the first like stop laugh I've had <laughs> any podcast yet so far. <laughs> you just. And suck on a lime and put a leech on your finger. Yeah, like, but I, I mean, yeah, at what point would you like to freeze progress exactly and say, oh, now we know everything we're going to know? Just, <laughs> no, we learn new things, which means sometimes I'm, I'm sure that I tell people things right now, something that is wrong advice because we're going to learn something new 10 years from now. I'm going to say that wasn't good or I could have done better. And yeah. That's OK. That's how we move forward. Well, and that's, I mean, wherever wherever you go to, it's like, okay, when, and who, okay, you feel jaded because, oh, well, somebody didn't have the right answer for me 10 years ago. It's like, yeah, but do you want other people to have the wrong answers for you now? Yeah. And I'm bitching a little bit about my student loans right now, but, you know, <laughs> like, whatever. Is that, that's, but that's, like, just as real of a thing more so than any for the medical field, right, is, like, you guys have a lot of money that you owe coming out of doctor school. Is that, like... That's an understatement, I would say. Yeah, it's it, you know it's hard to complain though. You'll meet, you, you will meet some doctors who will complain about their student loans and how much work it is and blah blah blah. And I kind of yeah, get over yourself. It's okay. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean honestly, even even those of us who in family practice, my specialty is one of the lower paid specialties mm-hmm, among mm-hmm. doctors. But I mean honestly, I make a comfortable living. You yeah. know, it's really hard to complain. I grew up working poor, you know, literally in a double wide trailer and I'm okay. Right. (laughs) Yeah, it's fine. (laughs) I I bought a car with cash a couple years ago. I never would have dreamed I could do that in my life. (laughs) You know, (laughs) that's phenomenal. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Well, and it's, and it's, it's just as, you know, people, people miss the, the working class aspect of medicine, right? And I think that's, that's so to do with them just feeling like they see the administrative process of medicine and not like the actual work effectiveness of medicine. Yeah, it's, um, I think maybe for some specialties like surgery in particular, it's probably a little more blue collar than people would think, by which I mean they actually are you know, preparing tools, mucking around with their hands a mm-hmm. lot, mucking around, right? Well, any, any, <laughs> it's any, only the inside of yourself. Any, any surgeons who hear that will totally appreciate that. But I mean, that part is a, it's, it's a little bit blue collar in that it's technical. You're working with your hands. I mean, it's a clean environment. So a lot of people, you know, think blue collar, you kind of think grease, but that, that part of it kind of is. Yeah. But then, uh, man, there's a lot of white collar stuff too, sitting at a computer, shuffling papers, typing, that kind of stuff. No, yeah. no. Uh, and it's uh, this is the is the research aspect to it. Like, have you have you ever stopped being a student? <laughs> no, you you can't be right. I, I always so when I was going through my training, I always thought that the guys the guys the physicians who I met, uh-huh. male and female, who yeah. were kind of in their late thirties through late forties, which is the window that I'm in, were generally the guys who were sort of on top of their game the most, and that's because they we're still really in touch with new research, mm-hmm. right? New enough from going through their training, but also had enough life experience to be able to sort of meld the two pretty well. Yeah. And um, then you meet some of the older guys who just quit reading research 20 years ago, <laughs> you know? And they're like, well, that's not how we did it when I was going through training in 1972. Yes, <laughs> that's not how they did it when you went through training in 1972. Do you know how much we've learned since then? I fear that though, man. I don't want to be that guy. Yeah. I, I don't want to be that 65 year old physician who is still practicing medicine like it's 2002 because that's how we did it when I was younger. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> that's not progress. <laughs> so you have to though. The, the hard part is there's so much medical information that comes out, but I mean, a good chunk of it doesn't really change practice. Mm-hmm. You know, like I get a few medical journals at the house. I read three of them cover to cover. But like one, there might be something about a, a molecule and an enzyme in one specific type of lymphoma and how that makes cells grow faster. Mm-hmm. It's as boring as you're reacting to it, right? <laughs> <laughs> it really is. And I'm not going to read that because it doesn't change anything about the way that I have to practice. Yeah. Uh, but it does take a little bit of work to sort through and see if there's new stuff coming out that should change the way you practice. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there's the. It's almost like your your Facebook feed. You scroll through, and it's like, okay, well, what is most relevant? I'll at least read the headline for everything. Yes. But like, there are some things that I'll click through. You know, actually flip through these particular pages. And... 
There's guides in medicine on how to do that. Every scientific article has an abstract. Here's a quick summary of what happened in here. Uh And I'll read that. And if the findings say that I should change something that I'm doing, I read the whole study. If the findings say I shouldn't change anything I'm doing, I don't waste my time. (laughs) I mean, and that's, you've got to, that is, that is as entrepreneurial of a mindset as you can take to anything like, is this the information I need for this very specific endeavor that I'm working on? Yes or no. If it's not, I do not have the time for it. Move on. Correct. Yeah. Cause otherwise it just, I mean, there's some things that anybody can nerd out on and you just want to know about because you want to know, but Mm -hmm. man, I've spent a lot of time in my life. Any doctor spent a ton of time in their life reading about medicine. So yeah, the, the little esoteric things after like, ah, that doesn't change my life at all. Pass. No, thanks. Outside of the, Facebook post. Now, have you? How long have you been doing those for? Been doing like just the longer Facebook posts. The people oh. are like, yeah, and then they share everywhere. Um, I had a one take off about a month or a month and a half ago, I uh-huh. guess. Um, so about like that. Yeah, not that long. Six weeks, eight weeks, something nice. like that. Nice. So, yeah. so outside of those writings, had you ever done anything like that was writing for journals or writing for publications or anything like that? Has that been ever been of interest? Or? Um, no, not since high school or college, okay. really. Um, I wrote oh, Mr. For, high School Doctor over here. Yeah, 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 right. <laughs> I mean, I wrote for a, um, what I want to say. No, I shouldn't say that. The Murfreesboro American, when it was still being published over in Murfreesboro, I wrote a regular column for them. Uh-huh. Not very often, once a month, once every other month. I don't yeah. even remember exactly how often. And, uh, yeah, I, I wrote for a... Uh, I guess a literary journal in college for a while. And actually that was kind of a cool experience. There were student editors and those guys were fantastic because Uh if, um, if my writing was bad, they didn't pull any punches. They were like, nah, (laughs) (laughs) you're repeating things you've heard from other people. You don't know what you're talking about. Go back, do this again, expand on it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that was, it was nice. Right. Cause they're, they're just, uh, it's not just for a grade to have somebody who's actually looking at your writing and being like, this is for actual consumption. You got to do better. Yeah. This will get you an A in your class, but it's really not that interesting or in depth or thought about. So that was kind of a good experience. (laughs) Yeah. Do do you think that the, the, the digestible doctor in terms of, you know, content and the modern, you know, content driven world that we live in, right? What we're doing right now, we're generating content. Like I'm a freaking farmer out in the field, just picking my legs out of the ground. Um, but like, is, is that a, is that something that you see that there's kind of a gap in that somebody like yourself, you know, or, you know, dozens of, you know, like-minded types of professionals, you know, could, could approach, over the coming years to get people more comfortable and thoughtful about healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one, doctors are busy, so a lot of them honestly don't necessarily want to spend the time doing that. And there's a good deal of Dunning-Kruger effect that happens in our in our What is Dunning-Kruger effect? I've heard that phrase and I cannot recall. So Dunning-Kruger effect, named after the two scientists, Dunning and Kruger, who first uh, studied this, show that people at the far ends of the intellectual spectrum tend to overestimate and underestimate how much they know about a topic, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? Meaning that uh, there are a lot of people out there who aren't smart enough to know how little they know, Uh (laughs) right? (laughs) And we see that a lot where, where people think that because they've read a few articles on Google or on Facebook that they have a thorough understanding of a medical topic. Right. But they really because they they, they can't even fathom how much time uh, uh, somebody who's gone through medical school, graduated at the top of their class, has spent reading and learning about this. Like mm-hmm. that is just not something that they can fathom yeah. that that person would um, would know so much more like it's impossible. It's incomprehensible. So that's one end of the spectrum uh-huh. is people who aren't smart enough to know how not smart they are. <laughs> right. And they overestimate their intelligence and their ability to have a have a smart conversation with somebody else. Uh-huh. Right. On the other end of the spectrum, actually, people who are really experts in their field tend to overestimate how much other people know. Uh-huh. Right. So because I'm sitting in a room all day thinking about things like high blood pressure, like diabetes, like opiate addiction, um, it can kind of it's going to skew um, my take on what an average person knows about those topics, mm-hmm. right? So I run an opiate treatment program, a heroin addiction treatment program at mm-hmm. my clinic. And if you ask me how big of a problem is that locally, I kind of go, I'm really not sure. Yeah. I spend all day thinking about it, enmeshed in it, and I'm so into it, think about it, have read so much about it, studied so much about it. I have totally lost 
any idea of what the average person knows, right? Yeah. Like it's just, and I realize that, so it's just gone. Um, where, where I see the Dunning Kruger effect a lot in my life, I think a lot of um, a lot of what do I want to say, skilled laborers kind of presume other people know as much as they do. Oh my God, carpenters, if, yeah, and masons, and yeah. yeah. I'll get somebody who will come to my house to do you know plumbing or just the other day. Um, uh, the the something went wrong with my heater uh-huh. in my house so i i hired boss heating and air shows it shows up to my house like that same afternoon uh, very nice hundred dollar plug no, <laughs> and the um what, what do i want to say so they they show up and neil who's also a friend of mine uh-huh. explains who the the owner right comes over and explains what is happening inside of my heater as if I have some level of expertise. <laughs> because one, I think that he's thinking, first of all, that I, I know more than I do, right? Yeah. He's a doctor, smart guy. He must he must understand how this how this works. Yeah. And then two, he's probably the same thing I just said with opiate addiction. He's doing it all day, every day. So I think he's probably underestimating his level of expertise to, <laughs> uh-huh. to some degree. And I see that all the time. You know, I've hired electricians to do work at my house and they explain things to me. I'm kind of like, uh-huh. Yes. Uh huh. <laughs> sure. I get it. I. I. Sure. If you. If you say that's the way we That'll need make to. Me feel like I don't need to challenge this bill when it comes through. We're good. Yeah. <laughs> we need to. But. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Any, anybody really wants to understand the world and how people see themselves moving about in a Dunning Kruger is huge. Yeah. And just in terms of constantly looking at ourselves in the mirror and saying, how much do I really know? about this yeah. topic the the part of it that bothers me the most or sometimes people want to argue about medical minutiae mm-hmm. um sometimes or statistical analysis or something like that and you know it'll be people who i know very well struggled to get through algebra one half in mm-hmm. high school and say i'm sorry man you just flat don't have the knowledge to really understand this problem and yeah. that's hard Right. Um, or, you know, the, the electrician explaining something to me, different size wires for different applications mm-hmm. and what codes are used in the house. And at some point I have to say, I just don't have the background to understand what you're telling me right yeah. now. So I have to trust that what you tell me is OK. <laughs> right. And at some point that is going to have to happen, because to be honest, I am not going to take the time to understand this problem thoroughly enough to make a good decision. So oh I'm going to trust the experts to, to cycle through these conversational topics is so awesome because you set me up for something good every time. Right. <laughs> and that gets to the point of like the societal contract and like, you know, presume truth telling in society. Yes. Right. Like in and, and just the the struggle that we have had in this pandemic, but like that I think probably shines a greater light on like healthcare conspiracy overall, or like, uh, you know, uh, people that go out there, anti-vax movements, great example. Yes. Right. Um, any number of poor practices that occur because people simply think one way, but have no evidence to back it up. And that's, they just are led by how they want to feel on a particular subject. So that's what they do. Like, what is that like to fight against? You know, the, <laughs> my, my reaction is what a lot of people's reaction is, which is when someone doesn't believe something you tell them medically to try to convince them with facts, which never works. Right? <laughs> it, just, it, it doesn't work when most people are just not in tune that way. Uh-huh. And that's an instinct that we probably all have to say, no, you're wrong. Here's why you're wrong. Yeah. But I mean, every bit of research says that just makes the person stick to what they believe even stronger. Yeah. So at some point, you got to start to make an emotional argument. So when I get anti-vaxxers in particular, um, I don't go to, here's all these papers you can read that prove that the MMR vaccine doesn't cause autism. Because mm-hmm. one, honestly, they're not going to understand the math that yeah. went into that. Because if they did understand the math, there's no way that they would believe yeah. that the MMR vaccine causes yeah. autism. They just wouldn't. It's impossible. Um, so the emotional argument is my great-grandmother died of diphtheria, yeah. right? So my grandmother basically grew up an orphan because her mother died of a disease that is now entirely preventable. Yeah. You know, here's this friend who had polio and she limps her whole life. And now she's developed this sore and had to get her foot cut off because she had polio back in the 50s. Mm-hmm. That doesn't have to happen anymore. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in a perfect world, facts would change people's minds. But, I mean, the reality is that they don't. So you have yeah. to get emotional there. Yeah. <laughs> or just aggressive <laughs> like, just, you know it does sometimes just feel good to shout down idiots you know 
I mean, I mean, because there are some people who we all know are just not going to convince. Yeah. And just to just to be like, you're just stupid. I mean, <laughs> well, I, and I, I think that is a that is something that we have missed uh, as a as a whole. Uh, that that the, the politeness of, of one of the of the fact driven segment of society that would simply say you're wrong here's the facts and turn their nose up and walk away are really the ones that should be engaged in the activity that the folks that are not following the facts are engaged in which they're shouting up and at screw you man you can't tell me what to think versus like maybe somebody should be screaming down like no you're just an idiot you <laughs> asshole <laughs> yes my, my f- oh my god People who um, have no medical background at all thinking they know more than Dr. Fauci. I mean, the the analogy that plays out in my head there, um, get, getting into medical school and getting a full-ride scholarship to play basketball in college uh-huh. are roughly as hard in the United States. Get, getting a full-ride basketball scholarship is slightly harder, but not a whole heck of a yeah. lot harder. So if you equate somebody going to medical school in the medical field as being a scholarship athlete, mm-hmm. now maybe that's somebody at a junior college who hasn't won a game in seven years. Maybe that's somebody at North Carolina or Duke getting a full ride, and they're yeah. going to compete at a national level and go to play in the NBA. They're, they're, all, they're all in the same boat. There are different levels yes, of that within it. A- absolutely. <laughs> but Dr. Fauci is LeBron James. Yeah. So he is not somebody who got a full ride basketball scholarship to play at a junior college that hasn't won a game in seven years. He's the guy who got the full ride to play at Duke and then was the NBA MVP for four years, right? So Did LeBron so, James play at Duke? I don't do so No, much, he didn't. So he I didn't even okay. go to college. He went straight <laughs> out of high school. Somebody watch podcast and be like, how's that guy not know where LeBron <laughs> James went to? No. But like literally somebody <laughs> thinking that they understand coronavirus better than, than Fauci is roughly equivalent to saying I could beat LeBron James in a game of one-on-one. Yeah. I mean, but there the number of people out there who think that, though, is remarkable. And did they think that way before the internet, or did it take the internet to get them there? And I don't know, because my Dunning Kruger area is simply in how to talk shit on Facebook. So <laughs> I'd, like I couldn't couldn't tell you how bad they were before. I will say that the people that don't have the facts have a twenty year head start on the people that do have the facts, because Infowars started streaming somewhere around the year two thousand. <laughs> if that's not in ADBC type or AD. AC, what, what is it, BC? Yeah, wow. I, I've literally forgotten the way in which B- we... BCAD? Thank you. There you go. <laughs> Before and after. Whoosh. Yeah. That's that's like the BCAD. Did I say that correctly? Yeah, yeah, that yeah. Time? yeah, yeah this yeah. is awful that I can't remember four stinking letters <laughs> right now. Um, that, that that is like the 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 time point for the internet like there is there is before info wars and there is after info wars yes and we are still not understanding that we are in the after info wars part of the internet 20 years later it, it has just made uh the internet has just made it easier for like-minded people even with marginal ideas to find each other and, and then have those, shut out the rest of the world yeah and have those ideas justified a little bit yeah go go into your own little uh your own little cave, your own little castle, right? <laughs> Most, you know, really intelligent people who I know and who I like are forever questioning what they know and forever saying, am I right? Am I learning new things? And how do I know that I'm right? Yeah. Um, and people that don't do that, it's hard to do that and be an intelligent human being. Yeah. It just is. You can be a functional human being and do those things, I think. <laughs> but to, to be a truly intelligent human being who moves around and understands changes that are happening in the world, can't happen unless you examine life that way. Man, like this is just, and I, I, I don't know. Do you think that you have like pretty solid bedside manner? Would you say that like you've like you're good at like creating and maintaining a relationship with patients and it being rather personable? Yeah, I think so. Okay, so I like. <sighs> <laughs> where am I going with this? So I, I, it wasn't like a trying to make you question like one way or the other. I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to get too far out on that. But, the, but you're saying, are you sure? How do you yeah, know? Right? How, do you, how do you know? That? <laughs> but it's like, you know, do you, do you struggle when you see others in the field that may miss that boat? Like, okay, like there, there's, there's something here that we have to better understand about our relationship with folks. Um, that that we're just not applying. So so probably what a lot of people don't get about practicing medicine in modern day America, especially if you work for any kind of 
corporation or company, which the vast majority of doctors in the United States do, mm -hmm. is that we get feedback constantly. I oh, mean, yeah. constantly. Um, I get feedback on what percentage of my patients have had mammograms, colonoscopies, um, pap smears. How am I doing managing their diabetes? How am I doing managing their, their blood pressure? And I get those numbers, and then alongside of it is what's the national average, and then mm -hmm. what's the local average? And it's really hard to argue with those numbers. If I'm doing a better job, great. If I'm doing a lesser job, I mean, it's all right. It's all right there. Mm -hmm. Patient satisfaction the same way our patients about as happy with me as they are with other, with other doctors in the area. Insurance companies grading me on how good of a job I am at getting patients in for visits. <laughs> I, got, uh, I got a particular finger for that. Like I can understand patient feedback and coworker feedback and, you know, whatever else. But if an insurance company was sending me a grade bill, I'd be like... <laughs> <laughs> it's it's constant though. I mean, at least once a week, if not more, I get some sort of feedback on my on my performance, and that's true not just of me, doctors, nurse practitioners, PAs, anybody mm -hmm. who's working for SIH or Shawnee Healthcare locally, yeah. the two biggest healthcare providers. Um, we, we're getting that information, and I mean, can you tune it out and make excuses about why you're doing a bad job? Sure. I mean, we've seen people do that, but, but the, the healthcare system has evolved enough such that the, uh, the powers that be at some point, somebody's going to approach you and be like, you're consistently underperforming in this area. Yeah. Tell me why. Yeah. Nobody likes that talk. And, and most of us that do this are, uh, self-correcting enough that even just pointing that out is enough to be like, okay, okay. I'll is, do is that, is that mass amount of feedback, a big component as to why administration uh, functions of hospitals have developed uh, more broadly, you know, in the recent what, 10, 20, 30 years, whatever it may be like, and sure. is that part of the critical care component of what you're doing? Like we have to have additional administration to handle more of this feedback so we can better check our work and develop better practices. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the upside to that is that, yeah, we develop better practices and doctors are held to a higher standard. The downside is, yeah, it makes healthcare more expensive because we're paying people to look at those numbers. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, to, uh, well, good, good or bad, right? You, you've, again, <laughs> meet some of the old guys who pine for the 1970s when then none of that stuff happened. Yeah. But life expectancy has gone up significantly since that time as well. <laughs> you know? And what's the goal of healthcare? Yeah, <laughs> and they are, I mean, they, they, are, they are directly directly related. Yeah. Huh, that's good. I know. I like that. I, I, well, I, I like that too. And I mean, I get frustrated too sometimes. I look and I'd be like, you know, the, the tendency anytime it's pointed out that you're not doing well in something is to get defensive. Yeah. Right. So instead of stepping back and being like, okay, why are my numbers not as good as these other people's? Mm -hmm. what, what, what do I need to do to improve these processes and that kind of stuff? People that work in a whole lot of industries, I realize, don't get that. But uh, imagine <laughs> what it would be like if there was a whole system in place just to grade your work. Yeah. Right? Anybody who's working as a, a mechanic, an electrician, I think salesmen probably deal with this a lot, right? Because they're forever getting numbers about how well are they doing at selling these things. Let me... Uh, let let me tell you about the world of digital marketing my <laughs> <laughs> and having and having lived with one eye on yelp and TripAdvisor and google reviews and everything for the past decade of my life we have handed over the ratings to the general public and the difference between healthcare and everything else like say uber for example yes. is there's no middleman helping to deliver <laughs> those those to you with a bit of polish it's very raw feedback direct from those that you have service <laughs> <laughs> i will uh usually if i'm getting the raw feedback it's somebody yelling directly in my face it's with some helpful suggestions about where i can spend my time <laughs> <laughs> i mean but, so is that i mean huh you deal with people that have all different levels of emotion mm -hmm. in their care. Um, that's another, just dude, you're, you're spot on with these segments, with these segues. I just, I love it. I love it. Big, big fan. Um, what, I mean, what do you do to handle that? I mean, everything from somebody who's very angry because they, they disagree with you or they don't want to believe what you have to say to somebody who experiences sorrow because they have to embrace what you have to say to those that are simply, you know, smiley, you know, here's a shot, here's a lollipop, you know, have a good day type of situation. Like that's a, a it, spectrum to deal with. It is. Yeah. I mean, I think anybody who 
who practices medicine and I throw nurses in here too, right? Especially a lot of patient interaction. You, you kind of meet the person where they are. And mm -hmm. I mean, I know that's true in a lot of professions, yeah. you know, that they're, they're I, I see a lot of patients from Mexico mm -hmm. and they're, I think the general view of healthcare in Mexico, it's still very paternalistic. Mm -hmm. Tell me what to do, doctor. I'll do it. Yeah. I don't need an explanation. Yeah. You tell me to take this pill, I'll, I'm going to take this pill. Yeah. Right. And that's a broad generalization, I understand. But that's something I definitely notice in my practice is that mm -hmm. you, you don't you don't owe me any sort of explanation for why I should be doing this. Yeah. If you say I should be doing it, I'm going to do it. Yeah. Right. Th then you get hyper anxious people who spend too much time researching things on the on the Internet and they want to <laughs> know exactly why you're doing this. What are the possible side effects? Um, do they know how many times have you prescribed this? How many times have you prescribed it today? What's it going to cost? And those you got to explain, 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 explain. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's a very different experience. But in the end, you just meet the person where they are and give them what they will give them what they want in terms of explanations. Not always what they want in terms of treatment because yeah. that's different. <laughs> but yeah, and honesty. I mean, um, as a as a younger practitioner, I was very um, what do I say? I didn't like to say I don't know. Yeah. Right. And sometimes people ask things. Why, why do you do it this way? Well, the the research says that that's the the best way to do it. Have you read the research? Most of it. Yeah. Do you really understand why this works? No. <laughs> and that happens sometimes, right? Yeah. Or people come in for weird aches and pains that you can't explain, and you have to say. I don't know. It's nothing serious, yeah. but I really can't explain what's going on with you. And Bodies people, are just so yeah. incredibly different. Right? Yeah. And and people don't always appreciate when you come to see me, my first job is to make sure that you don't have something that's going to kill you. Yeah. Right? So that's job one. Let me. What do you have that you might die of? Then two, it's to actually figure out what the problem is and fix it. Yeah. And a good chunk of the time, we get through problem one and never get to problem two, which is here, I know exactly what's wrong with you and I can fix this. And all doctors see plenty of people that get through that. And it's okay to admit that, right? To say, yeah. to say, I don't know, I, I can't explain what's wrong with you, but we did these studies, and I can tell you it's not going to kill you, so yeah. you're going to be okay. <laughs> yeah, and, that, and that's. But again, back to the original question, I guess, just meet the person where they are. Yeah. Yeah, and have to recognize not everybody can be treated the same. Oh man, the 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 tough part, I would imagine, right? There's there's a lot of, you know, in in your standard service industries of of retail and and you know restaurant and, and whatever you've got to meet the person where they are for uh you know a short period of time but for you know in in the healthcare field you've got to meet that person where they are repeatedly and with frequency and possibly for an extended period of time yeah <laughs> you, you know the the nice part though so one thing that i didn't appreciate as a medical student so when, when you're going through medical school you work with different doctors mm -hmm. and yet the longest you might work with somebody is going to be maybe two to three months yeah and then you're on to the next place and usually it's shorter than that it's a couple of weeks so you walk in the room and just the 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 again new into this you're seeing these seasoned professionals, one, they've seen these diseases more often than you have. So they're mm -hmm. quicker to recognize them, quicker to diagnose them, quicker to know what's going yeah. on. But they also have relationships with the patients who they're seeing. So they know the person, their tendencies, that kind of stuff. So a lot of times you look and say, well, they made that look easy. But it's because <laughs> one, they have a relationship with the person. They know how to talk to that person, uh -huh. right? And they know uh, they know what not to say to that person, which is sometimes just as important. So that helps. I mean, um, and not everybody's styles mesh, right? Mm -hmm. And to be honest, I've had some patients who, I mean, I didn't think were a good fit for me. And I've told them that, yeah. like, you are not going to like me, <laughs> right? <laughs> we're just not going to get along. We're just not. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't think I do particularly well with hyper anxious people. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, I I can be consoling, but I'm not terribly nurturing, Yeah, which is weird. I love babies, right? So yeah. I deliver babies, I take care of babies and I like that. But in terms of nurturing somebody along the way, yeah. I, I get a little frustrated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, and like, I'm here to give you this paternal oh, guidance you need. Go yeah, for it. So right. how, how does this translate to you as a parent? That's, <laughs> that's the other good step to this, right? Like, I mean, how, how old are your kids now? You talked about raising the family. And yeah. All that. I got a 17 year old daughter, 13 year old twin daughters and an 11 year old boy. Oh, that's we, exciting. My, uh, my twins are down in the other room right now. Oh, so the, how old are they? They, they are 10. Oh, um, you're right there. Huh? Oh, so you're like, yeah, you're right there, man. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm riding, I'm riding right along. They, uh, it's cool, man. Like the the twin thing in the pandemic has been amazing because they don't have their peers to run around yep. with. And you've you've got a couple more kids in the house than we do. We've just got the twins, but like they, 
take care of each other and they do a very good job of it. And it's like, they can mentor each other. They can help each other through the online classes. They have each other to play with. They, all we, this stuff. We had my twins and then Xavier, the boy, the youngest one, he's only like 19 months younger than them. So they kind of behave as their own little cluster. Nice. Yeah. And talking to parents of kids who have just like one kid right now, they're like, Oh God, they're bored. <laughs> you know, yeah. during the pandemic, don't get to see their friends do the after school things. I'm like, Instant party when we show up, man. <laughs> yeah. So the the benefit of a slightly larger family. Yeah. Four, four didn't used to be a big family. It feels like a big family now, I guess. Uh, oh no, four is a massive family now. Yeah. <laughs> so so the uh, what what I want to say the the ha, my my wife uh, who wonderful very very patient with my ego. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yours and mine both. Buddy. <laughs> yeah, who, who will be like sometimes we'll have to be like you are not Dr. Ripperdaw here. <laughs> right? Cuz uh well, one of the things that happens in healthcare is doctors get to give orders, uh-huh. right? Which is actually a legal designation for something that we say it, it's a it's a medication or a treatment that is uh-huh. given that a that then a nurse or somebody else, a lab is expected to carry out. Uh-huh. We give orders. So um, I sometimes have to be reminded that that does not apply in, uh, <laughs> in, in other places. Yeah. But I mean, as what, what do I want to say as, as um, I don't know, as a as a physician or a healthcare provider, you're kind of expected to be the captain of your own little ship, yeah. run your own little healthcare system, which for me is just people who work at my front desk, people yeah. that do the scheduling, you know, two nurses who I work with who are both fantastic people. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. You better put that in there, buddy. Yeah. There, but it's just, uh, yeah, that, that's it. The, the, the physician or nurse practitioner or PA is kind of expected to be the captain of that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I, can sometimes struggle to turn that off. <laughs> I, I get it, man. Yeah. No, I get it. I get it all the time. I do the, I do the same thing. Like just let the kids be the kids, like chill out, man. Like not everything is the same intensity that you bring to, you know, work or, or life or some of these other things. Like just be chill with the family, man. Did you, did you expect to like be the, the, the dad to like four kids and have the, the medium to larger size family? Or have you just kind of like, up? Oh, we're having some more kids. Yay. You know, we would, uh, what, what I want to say and to not uh, piss off your wife. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. So believe believe it or not, Kate, my wife and I actually had infertility issues. So it took fertility treatments to get pregnant the first time. Uh-huh. Uh, my twins are a product of in vitro fertilization. Um, and they're identical from that, which is like exceedingly rare. Uh-huh. And then, uh, uh, Kate got pregnant while, breastfeeding twins um, <laughs> with Xavier. because And I remember the conversation after the twins were born, her obstetrician asked if we wanted birth control. Uh-huh. And we kind of looked at each other and laughed, right? <laughs> so like, you're going to breastfeed twins, which is a form of birth control. And yeah. we've been basically paying people to try to get us pregnant for the past six years. No, we don't birth control. That's for other people. <laughs> we don't need that. She called me on a Friday afternoon, by the way. So when we, we thought very much our family was complete uh-huh. after the, after the twins. And it was a <laughs> Friday afternoon, um, that she took a pregnancy test and realized she was pregnant with child number four. And I mean, we had very much settled into this idea. This is our family. All right. Yeah. We have three daughters perfectly content, especially when you go from thinking you may never have children. Um, and she's like, I need you to go somewhere where nobody can see you (laughs) (laughs) and get a pillow or something that you could just scream real loud into. And and she said, I'm pregnant and kind of felt my jaw drop. Right. And what, and she did this like three 30 on a Friday afternoon and I had to see patients for another like hour and a half that Uh afternoon could not concentrate. So I walk out of the room and, uh, the nurses who I was working with at the time, none of whom are the same I work with now, but very in tune to me. They looked and they were like, are you okay? <laughs> you don't look right. You're a little bit gray. Uh-huh. Is something all right? Do you have cancer? Does Kate have cancer? Do your parents have cancer? Somebody's got cancer. We can oh, tell right. from looking at you. Somebody's got cancer. Something's uh-huh. not right. What's wrong? And Kate and I had agreed to not tell anybody for a little while, but within an hour, my nurses drag it, drug it out of me. Yeah. I was like, Kate's pregnant. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> they said, congratulations. I said, not, not yet. Next week. Congratulations for now. I need a second. Yeah. Uh, 
<laughs> yeah, just very unexpected, man. Very, very unexpected. And he's wonderful. Love, love the guy. He's uh, Xavier, my son. Yeah, he's, <laughs> you're uh, like, thank God I have <laughs> one boy that I'm, you know, that I'm not outnumbered. You know, a lot of so people say now. this. I honestly, for the first three children, I truly did not have a strong preference or inkling or really, really didn't. He was the only pregnancy where I kind of shook my fist at the sky and said, this one better be a boy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, congratulations, man. It just, it sounds, it's, it's a cool, it's a cool story behind like the, (laughs) just the the collection of kids and like how the cards landed. It's just kind of, it feels, it feels picturesque, right? it I does. It, and I like so many people in my early twenties had my life all planned out. Here's how it's going to go. Here's uh-huh. what I'm going to, here's how many kids we have. Here's what we'll name them. Here's what throw the schedule out the window. Forget it. <laughs> how Just old are you now? If you don't roll really I'm 42. Okay. Cool. Oh, shucks. You're not, you're not super old, man. You're not, you're not, you're not like, oh, I'm 52 with a 10 year old. I'm going to be a 60 something year old dad. Here we no, go. I, I get why people, man, I mean, one of the problems with parenting is uh, my oldest daughter had a total moron for a father who had no clue what he was doing and was really overconfident. And the youngest kid got a seasoned pro right? <laughs> with all of the knowledge, but none of the energy. So, so, you're, so you're 42, 17, so it was like 24-ish? 24, 25, I don't, yeah, in there. What, what, um... So you would have still been like doing medical school and all that stuff? She, when... she was born right before I started my fourth year of medical school, I guess, or just started my fourth year of medical what, school. What has it been like going through all of these stages of being a medical provider? And I mean, where, have you traveled the world with kids? Like was, were some of the times in Spain spent with the family or how? No, that, that okay. was all past. So pretty well, the, uh, no, the medical school, the one was born, did residency, no others. And my twins were actually born shortly after we moved back here to Southern Illinois, okay. just a couple months later. Moved to Southern Illinois, 4th of July weekend, 2000, back to Southern Illinois, uh, 4th of July, 2007. Twins were born October 1st, had my appendix out November 1st. It was an exciting few months. <laughs> keep it on a roll. We're not slowing down here. Yeah, Walk yeah, yeah. Of cash a couple months later? No, not, not <laughs> that, quite then. That, but... <laughs> that was one of those, like, the end of the year came and kind of looked back and go, what happened? What, what, what just happened? <laughs> We had so many things brought to our family and taken away from it. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, like that, that period of my life is a little bit of a blur because so much happened at once. Yeah. I don't know. We've all got in our lives those certain moments that kind of you define time around, you mm-hmm. know, going, going and getting a, a medical education, you move every three to four years for yeah. a while. College. Okay. I did two years in Galesburg, Illinois, one year in Spain, one year back in Galesburg, uh, one year in Champaign-Urbana, three years in Rockford, three years in Peoria. And I don't know, it was very easy to mark time then. Uh-huh. Oh, that happened when I lived in Peoria. Oh, yeah. that happened when I lived in Rockford. That happened. And now I'm like, I don't know, that happened sometime between two weeks ago and seven years ago. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not not quite the uh, the same milestones. You haven't that been tracking road older. construction well enough to, <laughs> <laughs> to keep your marks on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, <laughs> which season and everything, right? Yeah. <laughs> Oh man, I dig that. Um, gosh, I, I keep this. This is just uh, all very good, all very good. I enjoy all of my podcasts, but there's just something about when 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 you catch a track and you really flow with somebody. This is only the third time I've said it this whole damn podcast. But this has been a really really good uh, really good flow, and I'm. Uh, I, I got to give uh, if uh, if I'm coming off as a good BSer, I got to get credit to uh, my mom uh-huh. as a bunch of brothers and sisters. 11-ish, 10-ish. Oh, my God. I can't believe I can't remember right now. But uh, (laughs) And my dad, six brothers. And those guys are all just the king Uh of basically a six-pack of beer and each other's company is a Sunday. I mean, mean, that's that's if sitting around BSing, telling stories, some of which are true, some of which aren't. Uh I mean, that's that's just the upbringing, man. Oh, that's phenomenal. That's That's it. So very Southern Illinois. Yes, it is. Yes, we got nothing else to do, so we might as well give each other hell for a while. Yeah, storytelling is the key, man. I tell tell everybody, like, this whole thing, like, I use the phrase media very often, but really media is backed by the story storytelling right and that's that's it that's what our lives revolve around and that's everything right we've, we've talked a lot about 
uh, you know, medical practice and how policy, uh, you know, affects medical practice. But behind that policy is a story that has led to that policy that has initially originated from medical practice and created this closed loop system of something happens. There's a story of policies made a policy impacts continued care continued, and it just. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. What one of the issues we run into in medicine sometimes is that stories are more impactful than data. Uh-huh. Right. And I mean, in a perfect world, medicine would be incredibly data driven because that's how you get best medical practices. Yeah. That's how life expectancy goes up. That's how cancer treatment gets better. But you can get people who have a bad experience getting uh, the best treatment in the world. And that story resonates with people, mm-hmm. right? And then you can come to think, oh, the best medical treatment in the world isn't the best medical treatment in the world because this person has a really good story telling me telling me why not. Yeah. Um, so that's actually something we combat a little bit. And I think, honestly, we as medical providers need to do a little bit better job mm-hmm. of, of probably portraying things in terms of stories and less so in, in cold, hard numbers. Yeah. Um, that's why you have marketing departments, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can you, can you turn this into a story, please, please, right. please? <laughs> well, I, I mean, that's it. I mean, SIH does a really good job of, uh, of that. And they've done that for quite some time, really. Uh, you know, it seemed like they, they picked up and started moving with the Prairie Heart Institute was really when they dug into this storytelling component of, you know, getting people, you know, mindful about their care. And yes, there's, there's obviously the, we want to sell the care aspect to that. Uh, but there's also like an extra layer within healthcare marketing that, that really requires like leading that horse to water and getting it to drink in terms of accepting care on the on the terms of where you are, not necessarily where they are. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I don't work for SIH. No, right? no, no, I, no. I throw that. No, but I, I say that because I'm, I'm pretty heavily involved with SIH. It's mm-hmm. hard to be a physician in the area and not be. So I've served some physician leadership positions in the past. I guess I still do. Uh-huh. Um, a few. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess, am I still on this board? I don't know. I was president of the medical staff at St. Joseph's in Murfreesboro okay. for a couple of years. And that there, there's an obscene number of meetings that goes with that. And I'm not that anymore, right? Okay. I, I learned a ton during that experience, but I still serve on a bunch of different committees, but it's not quite the same in, um, in terms of how intense um, that role is how many meetings you go to, how much yeah. information is thrown your way. Um, so, that, so that's why I kind of said, oh, I guess I do still do, but it, it's less, so it doesn't feel like as much. Having that, having that bird's eye view of all of this is for a rural area. Do we have a rather robust healthcare system between large providers like SIH down to like things like rural health and Anna and like all around, or are we kind of an average type of like th- this is what you can expect in a lot of places for for rural health? The, the growth of SIH over the past uh, 15 years, mm-hmm. I guess, has really been phenomenal. Yeah. Um, Shawnee Healthcare, who is my employer, the growth of them <laughs> has also been phenomenal, yeah. right? But um, I think leadership of those corporations both kind of recognized that a lot of people were going outside of the area to get their healthcare uh-huh. because lack of specialists in particular mm-hmm. and there's been a very concerted effort locally to kind of attract more specialists um, to the area mm-hmm. so the number of things that would have been referred out 15 20 years ago that aren't now is fantastic i mean nice. it really is um I, I generally think our healthcare leadership in the area does a really good job of sort of recognizing what are the community needs mm-hmm. and uh what are we gonna what are we gonna seek out and i mean that's kind of dull work, honestly, but I mean, it influences people's (laughs) lives in very meaningful ways, you know, to say, well, we're going to survey, what do we need? Okay. We don't have enough endocrinologist in the area. We're going to, we're going to hire an endocrinologist and probably some people listening to this say, I have a vague idea of what an endocrinologist is, (laughs) but for people who need an endocrinologist, the difference between having one locally and having to drive back and forth to St. Louis, Paducah to see somebody like that is phenomenal. It really is. Is there a, um, so this, this is an interesting one, right? It, people always talk about uh, healthcare in terms of like jobs growth, right? Everybody's always like, ah, healthcare, healthcare, jobs, 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 right? And um, you know, phenomenal, cool, we've got these jobs accessible in the area, but like they come to be not just based on, well, we need a nurse, so we have a nurse. Like I would imagine there's like a tree of 
people that fall under, like you talked about having your team of folks, right? That like a single specialist can lead to, uh, you know, economic activity that revolves around 10 people's lives or more. I mean, is that a thing? Yeah, there's, you know, and I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but studying like the the economic impact in an area of just bringing one physician's office is Mm -hmm. pretty big. Because it's it's basically a small business that you're that you're opening up. You're not just getting a physician. Mm-hmm. You're getting um, a physician, a couple of nurses, a couple of people to answer the phones and do billing, and um, yeah, work at the front desk. But then you're also keeping a little bit more money in people's pockets mm-hmm. because maybe they don't have to drive quite as far yeah. as uh-huh. they would have before. Or um, th- th- there's all sorts of research saying that the closer somebody lives to their doctor, the better their health outcomes are. Uh-huh. So if we kind of have closer doctors locally that also makes people generally healthier which is yeah. also in general good for the good for the economy and that's not that's not new data that that's all been around forever mm-hmm. so you know one of the facebook posts you talked about i i had a patient who did not have covid mm-hmm. but had to go to evansville indiana because mm-hmm. that was the closest place that this person's needs could be accommodated. Yeah. Um, two years ago, in not a time of COVID, there's no way this person winds up in Evansville, Indiana. Yeah. Right. Would not have happened. This person <laughs> would have absolutely stayed locally, uh-huh. um, w- without without any second thought or any trouble whatsoever. But the truth of the matter is, transferring that person that far away is a big ordeal for the family. Right. It's a it's a big ordeal for the patient. You transfer somebody and things can go wrong while they're in the ambulance or on the helicopter. And it, it increases the person's risk of dying, yeah. you know, just just plain and simple. So the more healthcare we get here locally, the better it is, man. Yeah. Nice. Nice. So we are at the hour mark on the podcast. I'm usually around an hour when, when we benchmark it. What we've not touched on a whole lot this conversation is putting people in their place about COVID. So let's, let's close <laughs> right. out on this by way. And usually I don't kind of direct through on the, on the closure of the podcast, but like, what are the things that you need to say about what people need to be doing and acknowledging and like being mindful of around COVID that you're concerned that they may not be specifically here in Southern Illinois around your neighbors and the people that you may love. <laughs> so I, COVID is, I mean, it's real, first of all, and I can't believe that I still have to say that. Um, and I lost one of my favorite patients last night to COVID actually 90 year old lady, 91, um, who lived at an assisted living and I would go see her there every other month and we would sit in the garden and we both have a mutual love of, uh, native flowers and birds. And she bribed me. She would not talk to me about medical information unless we sat in the garden and had a little conversation about flowers and birds first. <laughs> Love this woman. Um, and was in as good a health as you can expect to be at that age. And she's gone. And that's shitty, right? Because she, I mean, 91, odds of making it to 100 are fairly slim. But mm-hmm. she had several good years left. Yeah. And I'm sad that I don't get to sit in the garden and pick out what type of woodpecker we're looking at anymore, which is a small thing, but a very, a very real thing. Somebody deciding that that woman's life is not worth wearing a mask into a store pisses me off. I mean, just plain and simple, right? And you can argue about personal freedom. You can argue about whether masks really work or not. First of all, you can't argue about whether masks really work or not. They do. You can say the sky is green all you want to. It's not green. It's blue, yeah. right? Most days or gray some days, but <laughs> it's very seldom, if ever, green. So yeah. just because you say it doesn't work or because we doctors got it wrong at the start of the pandemic and say that they don't work, um, we realized we were wrong. We corrected that error. So that, in particular, sort of drives me nuts. And people not recognizing that those actions have consequences, right? Right. I don't know where this patient who died got COVID. Um, Maybe somebody went to a bar that's not supposed to be operating right now because of the governor's orders and got COVID there and went home and talked to one of the, um, talked to their neighbor who works in the assisted living facility where this person was. They have a short conversation um, indoors about something totally unrelated. The worker gets it, brings it to work. My patient's dead. But that, that's the kind of thing that happens. And the more you have the virus circulating in the community, the more likely those things are to, to 
happen. Um, I'm particularly disappointed in people who claim to be patriotic because they love to fly the American flag and they say they support the troops and they love America, but then you say, okay, so we're going to ask you to make some sacrifices for your fellow Americans. And they say, nope, can't do that. Freedom. It's all about freedom. It's not about sacrifice. It's about freedom. I think anybody who truly examines their own lives and say, um, who are the people who have been good to me in my life, who love me? Is it about that person doing whatever they want to, consequences be damned, or is it about that person making some meaningful sacrifices um, for them? Um, so any time I see somebody who has sort of displayed that attitude of saying, I am patriotic, I'm an absolute patriot. I would give anything for this country. I would do anything for this country. I love this country. Everybody should be flying the American flag. Okay, we wear a, wear a mask when you go into Huck's. No. Sorry, man. You are not a patriot. Your only interest is in doing what, what you want to do and to not be inconvenienced by them. And that's not patriotism. That's selfishness. Plain and simple. So anybody anybody out there who is not willing to make even some minor sacrifices like that Sorry, I, I, I'm calling you a hypocrite. Straight out, plain and simple. Um, I, I don't think it's even a complicated argument necessarily. Do what is right to keep more people alive. The, the part of my argument here that it gets a little more nuanced is if people say, well, what about the people who have lost their, their businesses during this time? Because that's a very real thing too um, that I understand is very difficult. So I think one of the sacrifices that we all probably need to look at a little closer is how do we support small businesses at the same time as socially distancing, wearing the mask to keep people alive. I don't think it has to be both ways, right? Order takeout from the restaurant down the street. Go into the store and practice social distancing. You don't have to have it two ways. Don't go stand in the bar with your mask off and have a bunch of drinks. Order some food from the bar so that they're getting their, their money all the same way and not having to, to shut down. So that's a sacrifice that I think a lot of us probably aren't thinking about, but that also really needs to happen that we say, I like this business because I get to go stand inside the bar, talk to my friends and drink a beer. And now we have to say, okay, I'm not getting that experience anymore, but I'm still going to spend my money there because I want to be able to have that experience on the flip side and I don't want to kill anybody. Um, so, you know, a lot of us who are a little more tolerant of the government restrictions, I think, tend to maybe miss that side of the argument also mm -hmm. and say, if we are going to have more restrictions, we also need to be a little more mindful of supporting small businesses that rely on people to come in and um, not be able to wear a mask to partake in their services. So there's that part of the, the coin too. Um, that's, I mean, that's, that's my, my stump in a nutshell is sacrifice, guys. You love this country. You sacrifice for this country. What does that look like? It looks like wearing a mask when you don't want to wear a mask. It looks like supporting the small business, even though it's a little bit more inconvenient and maybe not as fun as it used to be. And it's about standing eight feet apart from people, even though that's not what you're used to. That's it. That's it. Episode 29, <laughs> WTF Carbondale podcast. Medical doctor, that's what the MD stands for, Jeff Reperta. Did I get it right? Ripperda. Ripperda. So close. Jeff Ripperda. Um, have a good one, ladies and gentlemen. Whatever that one may be.